Well, my friends, we have here, again, the, uh, a chapter of Scripture which is zeroing in on something that was already raised in a previous chapter. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 43, we considered this last week, that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. During this time when the Spirit of God had baptized the church, or when I should say the Lord Jesus Christ has baptized his church with the Holy Spirit, and during the time when now these people came to see that Jesus was the Messiah King, that they had been waiting and expecting, that they had crucified him, that now you have, uh, you have uh, during this time, uh, miracles are being done by the apostles. And now the scripture is going to zero in on one of these miracles. It's going to, to focus in on one of these miracles that happens. So again, you can imagine Luke, he's writing this book of Acts, right? And he, he wants Theophilus. Remember Theophilus, that name from, the, from verse 1 of the, of the book, right? He wants Theophilus to have an example, to see what really happened, what kind of miracles were taking place in the early church at this time. And so that's what chapter 3 is now going to give us. Now, this particular story involves Peter and John. And you can see that they go up to the temple at the hour of prayer. The hour of prayer. So, you see from this, uh, from this uh, comment there in verse 1, at the hour of prayer, my friends, how Jewish these people still were. That's a, that's a good comment for me just to quickly focus on a minute. The hour of prayer. That the people to whom Peter and the apostles were preaching during this time, the people who were gathering together in homes, the people who were enjoying these times of fellowship, of breaking of bread, praising and praying to God, right? These are Jewish people. And you can see they're still Jewish people. They're still practicing the, the uh, principles of the Jewish religion, as you have here in verse 3, because there's the hour of prayer, and they go up to the temple to observe this hour of prayer. That temple, of course, would have been a place where the Jewish religion was centralized in. So the hour of prayer. Then you have this miracle take place. And this is the occasion then for Peter's sermon. Again, Peter is called upon to explain something marvelous, something that is, has taken place, and the crowd rushes forward amazed. By the way, you're going to see in chapter 3 so many parallels between chapter 3 and chapter 2. In both cases, you have a miracle or something amazing that has taken place. In both cases, a crowd quickly forms. And in both cases, Peter has to stand up and explain what's happened. And in both cases, Peter gives a sermon or he gives an address to the people at this time, or the people who had gathered there. So it's Peter's sermon uh, that I'd like to quickly uh, review with you what happens. So after this miracle takes place, Peter stands up to explain what is happening? You see this beginning in verse 12. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? So Peter is now going to explain to the gathered crowd what they have seen. Let's look at the logic then, the, the flow of Peter's sermon. I see three points in Peter's sermon here. Three points. Look with me at the, the scripture here, if you start in verse 12, that this first point that Peter makes then is this miracle that took place was not done by our power. 
It is not as if we are some kind of magician or a magic worker. No. Says Peter in verse 12, Why are you amazed at this, or why do you gaze at us, as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? There's point one. Peter is very quick, and John very quick to say, we didn't do this. This is not something that we did by our own ability. On the contrary, says Peter, this is something that God has done. Do you remember when Nicodemus came to, uh, to see Jesus by night? Remember Nicodemus? And he said, Master, we know that you are a teacher sent from God because no man can do the signs which you do unless God be with him. You see, Nicodemus and the Jewish people generally understood that when a miracle took place, it was something that God had done. It was something that only God could do. And so God had worked a miracle. Now, that's Peter's second point. This is not something that we've done, point one. But point two, this is something that God has done. And actually, God has a purpose with this, says Peter. God has a purpose for this. In verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate. Now again, I told you, my friends, that you see so many parallels between Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. Remember how I pointed out to you that even though the church was baptized with the Holy Spirit on that glorious day, the focus is all on Jesus, right? Jesus says, this man whom you crucified. Now look with me at your Bible and notice how long it takes for Peter to put the focus right back on Jesus, right? Peter starts to speak in verse 12. And he says, why are, you, why are you so amazed at this? Do you think that we did this by our own power? No. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did this. He did it to glorify his servant, Jesus. Not even one verse in. And again, you see that Peter immediately swings the focus away from the miracle, away from this man, away from themselves, certainly. And he fixes the, 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 the point, the focus, the, the spotlight on Jesus. Again, that shows you, my friends, this second point, that God did this miracle, and he did it for a reason, because he wants to show you who Jesus is. <clears throat> and then point three. Point three, Peter brings this home in a point of conviction. Verses 14 to 16, Peter is explaining to these people what they had done with God's Messiah. That God had sent Jesus to be the Messiah, the king of his people, to deliver them from their sins and from their evil, to rescue them, and they had nailed him to the cross. So that's the third point, a point of conviction. Point one, this miracle was not done by us, not by our power. Point two, God had a purpose for it. God did this miracle, which is obvious, only God can do miracles. God did this miracle, but he did it for a reason, because he wants you to know who Jesus is. And in the third point, you took, you took the king that God sent for your salvation and you crucified him. And then, of course, just like in chapter 2, we have the application. The application given us in verse 19, therefore. Right? There's, the, there's the application word. Right? Whenever you do applications in a sermon, it's always therefore. Right? Therefore. This is true. Now, therefore, verse 19, repent and return. 
so that your sins may be wiped away. So there you have the, the Peter sermon. Three points and an application. Well, I want to zero in now, my friends, on this miracle. I want to first talk about a miracle in general, and then I want to zero in on this miracle, which Peter's sermon, which was the occasion, again, for Peter's sermon. So first, let's think about miracles in general. In the Bible, my friends, a miracle is never just a wonder that takes place that is meant to draw out our amazement as people do magic tricks, right? And we're astonished at what they can do. They make things disappear and they make things up here, right? A miracle is never that. And if you're taking notes this morning, write this down. A miracle is an acted parable. An acted parable. There's really very little difference between a miracle and a parable. Children, do you remember what a parable is? A parable? Remember that you learn in school that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I think you probably learned that. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now, a miracle is just an earthly action, you might say, with a heavenly meaning. That's why I call a miracle an acted parable. It's a miracle that consists not in necessarily words, although more than likely words are going to accompany it, but it's an action. It's something visible that you see. And it has a heavenly meaning. An acted parable. And of course, we know from reading the life of Christ that this is his favorite method of teaching, isn't it? Right? And, and it doesn't always involve a miracle. Right? Jesus takes a towel and he bends down and he washes the feet of his disciples. Because their feet were dirty? Because their feet needed to be cleaned? Well, yes, they were dirty, but that wasn't the reason for it, right? It was an object lesson. It was an acted parable. Jesus got down to teach them a lesson about humility, to teach them about who was first in the kingdom of God. Jesus sees a sower throwing his seed, and he right away, right? Behold the sower going forth to sow, says Jesus, and he gives them a parable on that. Well, now in the same way with these miracles, that when miracles are done by Jesus, and then in the book of Acts by the apostles, they are a sign. They are pointing to something. They are an acted parable. They're an earthly action or an earthly story, you might say, with a heavenly meaning. By the way, if you go back to verse 43 in chapter 2, you can see that even the name given to miracles points to this. In Acts 2.43, it says, Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs. Miracles are called signs. Why? Because they point to something. They point to something. Again, they're not just amazing things that we step back in astonishment and, wow, look at that. That's incredible. No, a miracle is intended to point to something. And that's why they're called signs. Now, in chapter 3, Peter tells us exactly what this sign is pointing to, doesn't it? In verse 13, we already mentioned that. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. So this miracle that Peter and John did, it's pointing to Jesus. It's, a, it's like a sign that's pointing this way. Jesus, this is who Jesus is. And that's what this miracle is all about. And that's what all miracles are about in the Bible. They are always pointing to something. So then we come to this, to this miracle here in the third place. Why this particular miracle? 
Now think about this man. I've already, I've already said that this miracle was pointing to Jesus, but think about this man, my friends. Think of where he's sitting. Here's this lame man, and he can't walk. His legs hang uselessly. They just dangle uselessly under him. They cannot hold up his body. He cannot walk. If he goes anywhere, he has to be carried there. And there he sits at the gate of the temple. There he sits at the, at the, at the, the center, right? The most magnificent place of the Jewish religion. There sits this man day after day. Day after day, he sits there. Day after day, the priests, the scribes pass by him. Maybe even the high priest passed by him one day. They saw him there, right? We read that after this miracle had taken place, they recognized that he was the man that was sitting there. So they knew this man. This man, and, and probably others like him, sat daily at the temple. But the temple couldn't do anything for him, did it? The priests couldn't do anything for him. The scribes couldn't do anything for him. Day after day, week after week, month after month, this man sat there. Nobody could help him. Until Peter and John come along. By the way, Peter and John can't help him either. Peter and John make that clear, right? They insist on that point. We can't help you. But in the name of Jesus... In the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. You see, my friends, this is what that miracle is pointing to us. That all the man-made religion of the Jewish customs and rituals and traditions couldn't help this man. This man literally sat in the shadow of them day after day after day. But they couldn't help him. All the Pharisees, all the scribes, all the priests and the high priests... Remember what Jesus said to them in the Gospels, right? He says, Jesus said, even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men. Right? These were people who were proud of their righteousness. They were punctilious in their obedience to the law. They tithed of mint and anise and cumin. Right? They were, they were so precise. Remember when Jesus told the parable of the, uh, or not the parable, when he gave the story of the, uh, uh, the, the Pharisee and the, and the publican, right? He said, and he spake also this parable unto certain who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. These people were renowned for their righteousness and for their godliness. And yet day after day, that lame man sits there. Week after week. Month after month, nobody can help him. The best they can do for him is drop some coins in his cup as he begs alms from them. They cannot give strength to his legs. They cannot make this man stand up and walk. May I say it this way, my friends? This man is a testimony to the failure of the Jewish religion. Every day he sits by that temple. And every day this lame man preaches a sermon to the people walking by. That all the righteousness that this temple represents, all the righteousness that these people think that they have, it does them no good. It does me no good. And he sits there week after week. <clears throat> but now Peter comes. Peter and John come, and they say, look at us. Silver and gold have I none, say Peter and John. We can't help you that way. But in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And then you see the wonder, my friends. Do you see that in your mind? And what must have gone through the heart of this man? 
When suddenly his, ha- his legs didn't dangle uselessly beneath him anymore. But suddenly they, they're full of strength. Suddenly his legs work. Suddenly he can put them under him. He can stand. And when Peter helps him up, he stands there on his own strength. And he begins to leap. I mean, it even has a bit of humor in it, in it doesn't it? That this man begins to leap and to prance and to jump around. And he walks and he, he even runs on his legs. Again, it must have been something of a humorous sight for this man. He wasn't showing very good decorum there, was he? Running around like this. But his legs work. He's healed. He has strength back. And why? Again, the apostles make it so clear, not by our power, but in the name of Jesus. Now, my friends, I'd like you to look with me. Please take your Bible and look with me at verse 16. This is the text for the sermon this morning. And before I read this with you, remember, dear friends, that when we read the Bible and things are repeated, we need to stand up and take notice of that. When the Bible repeats things, that's a time for us to stop a minute, to pause, and say, this is important. In fact, this is probably the most important thing in this passage. This is probably the central theme of this passage. Look at me with verse, at verse 16. Acts 3 and verse 16. So Peter is explaining, why is this man walking? Why can he jump up and leap and hop? In verse 16, and on the basis of faith in his name. Right? I've said that a number of times already. This miracle was done in the name of Jesus. But then the verse continues. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. He said it a second time. He already told us once, but he says it again. Okay? And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. He says it a third time. Did you follow me there? I'm going to read it again. And on the basis of faith in his name, that's the first time. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. There's the second time. And then a third time. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. My friends, did you miss the point? Did you get the point this morning? That not the temple. By the way, the temple at this time was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was unbelievable, staggering in its beauty and grandeur. If it was still uh, built today, it would be a, a massive tourist attraction. Unbelievable what Herod did with the temple. But that temple, with all its glory, with all its majesty, with all its ritual, and with all its tradition, could not help this man. Neither could these scribes and Pharisees, with all their strict lives, with all their righteousness, with all their man-made rules and traditions and rituals, couldn't help this man. But now Peter says, in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. And then everything changes. Then power flows into the legs of this man. And now he stands up. My friends, what you see in this lame man is a little picture of the people of God. The people of God in the Old Testament. What do you see there? I see a lame man. They tried to serve the Lord. They said, we are going to keep his covenant. We are going to obey his laws. But they fail. And they fail. And they fail again. Even the holiest of men, like David, fails. I see a lame man until the Spirit of God is poured out in power on those people, on the people of God. Just 120 of them at the start. But again, over 3,000 were added in in those first days. But now the Spirit of God comes down. 
Now they are joined in a saving union with Jesus Christ. And in the name of Jesus Christ, I see that lame man leap to his feet. His legs are strong. He leaps. He hops. He praises God. He runs about. His enthusiasm is, is, well, you can't miss it, can you? Do you see with me sort of a picture of the people of God from the time of Mount Sinai all the way up until the coming of Christ? It's as if they're a lame man sitting at the temple, but they can't do anything for themselves. They never can bring themselves to obey until God makes a new covenant with them, until he pours out his spirit upon them. And they come, and in the name of Christ, they stand up and they walk. Now, my friends, the response to this is, again, just as in verse two, or chapter 2, a sense of horror. These people are horrified when they realize that they crucified the very one who came to save them. Now, notice how Peter softens it a little bit. Look at verse 17. Again, I think that verse 17 is a clue that these people, again, were pierced to the heart. They were, they were horrified at what they had done to Jesus. In Acts 3 and verse 17, And now, brethren, says Peter, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers also. It's as, it's, it's as if Peter says, I know you didn't mean to kill the Messiah. You didn't mean to kill the very one who was going to save you. But you did. But you did it in ignorance. But now Peter says, repent. Repent and return, verse 19, so that your sins may be wiped away. And of course, just as in uh, Acts 2, he said, repent and be baptized, right? And we understand that repentance here certainly includes faith, right? And, uh, and here, baptism is not mentioned, but it certainly is included as well, right? Repent, and those who repent then are baptized, right, with their families, and they receive the glorious uh, sign and seal of God's saving grace. And God then brings times of refreshing. Verse 19, that times of refreshing, that refreshing when the strength comes back into your legs and when you can stand up and walk and jump, times of refreshing may come. Well, my friends, I come then to my points of application here. What a beautiful story this is. But I think we, we see already in this chapter, we saw it in, in chapter 2 as well. <clears throat> what to do with our sin. Let this be my first point of application this morning. What to do with our sin. In Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 3, the answer is the same. Repent. Repentance. Now then, in the first place, my friends, when we think about repentance, we don't think about bringing our sin to a kind of self-help program. We don't take our sin and bring it to the temple or bring it to the Pharisees. What will they tell us? Well, they will tell us, you need to try harder. You need to work hard to put this sin to death. You need to you need to dot your I's and cross your T's. In the first place, now I'm not saying that's not appropriate, but not in the first place, right? There's a time for that, but not in the first place. Repentance does not involve bringing our sin and bringing our shortcomings as a Christian to a kind of self-help program. No, that's what the Pharisees and scribes would have prescribed. No, we bring our sin to the name of Jesus. Do you hear me this morning? You bring your sin to the name of Jesus.
because it's only in the name of Jesus that this miracle of love can take place, that your sin can be forgiven, and that your legs can be strengthened so that you can stand on your feet again. I put in the sidebar of the outline there those quotes. They come from the Westminster Confession. But you'll notice that by repentance, in that first block up there, I just want to point out these words to you. By repentance, a sinner, and then I'll, I'll let you read the rest there on your own, but notice in the middle of that block it says, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent. You see, my friends, when we bring our sin in repentance, we don't flee away from God in horror that he's going to punish us and damn us eternally. That, one, that might very well be appropriate. But that's not what the gospel teaches us, right? The gospel says, bring your sin to Jesus. That's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Remember Luther's struggle in the time of the Reformation? That was his problem, right? He couldn't bring his sin to God because he saw God as a just God and a holy God who would punish him forever. But the beauty of the gospel, my friends, is that we bring our sin to the holy God because in the holy God we meet the name of Jesus. And in the name of Jesus... And before his cross and before his bleeding body, we find a full atonement for our sins and a full forgiveness for them. I love how this chapter, my friends, and the apostles make it so clear that this was not done by our power. But in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. This, this, this chapter teaches us what to do with our sin. Confess it. Own it. Hate it. It teaches us another lesson, my friends, that we never deal with our sin properly by just dismissing it. In fact, I would say that in our culture today, this is probably the most common method, right? Well, it's not your fault. R.C. Sproul tells a story. He has a book called What to Do with My Guilt, or What Can I Do with My Guilt, something like that. It's a, little, a very short little book. But in that book, he tells a story. He had met this girl who was engaged to be married, and she had broken the seventh commandment with her fiancé. And she confessed to Dr. Sproul that she felt so guilty, that she was consumed with guilt. And Sproul says, I asked her what she had done about her feelings of guilt. She told me that she had gone to the campus chaplain, had told him her story, and had told him that she felt guilty. He had been very kind, pastoral, and gentle toward her in his response. He said, do you love this man? And she said that she did. He asked, are you planning to marry him? And she told him they were engaged. They were already engaged. Finally, he said to her, well, what you're doing with him is perfectly normal. And he cited statistics and studies that indicated the statistical normalcy of this kind of behavior. Well, after she told me this story, says Dr. Sproul, I asked her what had happened after this conversation. She said, I still feel guilty. At that point, I said, that is, Dr. Sproul said, well, maybe the reason you feel guilty is because you are guilty. You hear that, my friends? Dr. Sproul was a man who understood that the way you deal with your sin is not by dismissing it, not by explaining it away, not by citing statistics that this is perfectly normal behavior and everybody does it. 
but by looking it in the face. That, that's what it means, my friends, to own our guilt. To look it in the face and to own that this is my sin. And I am at fault for it. And I deserve punishment for it. Now, my friends, such a person is in a position to bring his guilt, to bring his or her sin to the name of Jesus. Jesus can't forgive your sin. It sounds strange to say that, doesn't it? That Jesus can't do something. But my friends, I say it this morning. Jesus can't forgive sin. That we don't own and confess and take the blame for. But when you bring your sin to Jesus, my friends, he takes it away. He brings those times of refreshing that our passage speaks about. And that sin is forgiven. That is the only way to deal with sin. And that is repentance. That's what repentance is. And so in the, in the, in the terms of the gospel, my friends, the only way to deal with sin in such a way that that guilt really can be removed is to bring it to Jesus. What did we read from the Psalm 103 today? As far as east from west is distant. Now, I know, my friends, that people have memories of sins they have committed. By the way, this morning, I'm, I'm not so much thinking just in general about how we're sinners. Yes, we know that and we need to confess that. But especially, I'm thinking this morning of sins that we have committed. Sins that we have in our memory. Sins that we would not talk about with anybody else. Sins that maybe only a very few people know about. And yet, sins which drag us down. They, they take away the joy of the salvation that we have in Christ. They rob us of that sense and that assurance of God's love. Those sins, my friends, confess and own and bring to the name of Jesus. And God blots them out. God forgives them. So that you can have the, the feeling in your own conscience that as terrible a sinner and as wicked a thing as I may have done in my life, that by the grace of God and by the name of Jesus, I stand up on my feet and walk. And as far as east from west is distant, so far has he removed my sins from me. My friends, do you want to feel that assurance today? Do you want to feel the joy of knowing that your sins are removed as far as is humanly possible from you and from your record? Then you must take that sin to the name of Jesus. And that's gospel for you this morning. My friends, in the second application, I want you to see the miracle. Because that's what we want, especially this morning, to see, right? This is, this is a miracle. It is an acted parable. You are meant to see in your mind's eye. This man, oh, that's not the appropriate place to be running and jumping, sir, in the temple of God. But he's so full of enthusiasm. He's so full of joy as he reflects on what's happened to him that his legs are strong, that he leaps and jumps through the temple, shouting and praising God. And when you see that, my friends, you see the miracle that took place. Not just what physically took place to this man's legs, but what took place in the court of heaven. When this man's guilt was removed, and what took place in the heart of this old man, when he wasn't just healed physically, but he was healed spiritually, and he was given the Spirit of God. Again, in the outline, I put that on the, in, in the uh, little box there to the right of application two. Again, from the Westminster Confession and its article on repentance, Read this with me, my friends. Think about this. Take this home with you. Lay it before the Lord in prayer. 
as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. Do you confess that this morning, my friends? That's not easy to confess, is it? That the least sin and transgression against God deserves eternal damnation. But let's continue. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. You see, my friends, if you understand the power of the name of Jesus, then you confess that there is no sin in your life. No sin, not even that sin, which plagues you, which, which takes away your assurance of God's love in your own soul. That sin, that's like a thorn in your conscience. That sin cannot stand on your record one second longer than you truly confess it to God and repent of it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My friends, do you see the miracle of God's grace that took place in your life today? Maybe it took place many years ago. Whenever it took place, do you see that miracle? I put on the outline as well those wonderful words, some of my favorite words from our Lord's Supper form. The very last words that we read together in the form. Therefore, in other words, after all that we saw and experienced at the table of the Lord, the broken bread, the poured out wine, and all that it represents, therefore shall my mouth and heart show forth the praise of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. That, my friends, was the, the language of that, that man that was healed. I don't know what he was saying, but I imagine it was something like this. Therefore shall my mouth and heart show forth the praise of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. As he leaped and hopped and jumped on his new legs. What a miracle, my friends. What a miracle that was. I come then to my third point of application. And this is the same application that I made last week. But again, it fits so beautifully. Do you think, my friends, that there ever came a time in the life of that man when he forgot that day? Don't you think that he sat down with his children and with his grandchildren? And for as many people as would hear, he said, let me tell you what happened on that day. And nobody had to ask about what that day was because they all knew what that day was. That day that I sat there and in the name of Jesus, I got my legs back. My body and my soul was healed in the name of Jesus. He never could forget that day. And how many tears flowed down that man's face when he thought about that day. When he thought about the, how many times he'd been brought to that temple gate by his friends. By the way, what faithful friends he must have had. But day after day laid there helpless as a child. He couldn't move to the left or the right. All he could do was hold out his hand. And then the day came when that miracle of love took place. And in the name of Jesus, he was healed. Healed. That was like his birthday for him. And I put on there that, that gospel quartet that sings this song, Saved by Grace. And I put that on there. I want you to see that song today, my friends, and to hear these lyrics through the mouth and through the mind of this man. If you could see what I once was, if you could go with me back to where I started from, then I know you would see a miracle of love that took me in its sweet embrace and made me what I am today, an old sinner, saved by grace. Again, I don't know what that man sang, but I imagine it was something like this, something like that. If you could see what I once was, my friends, do you, by the grace of God, sing that song this morning?
Would you say to your children, to your grandchildren, if you could see what I once was, and if you could see what the grace of God, what the name of Jesus made out of my life, out of my poor, sick, miserable life, what I once was, then you would see a miracle of love that took me in its sweet embrace and made me what I am today, an old sinner, saved by grace. Let us pray. Lord, we do come before you this morning. And Lord, we know that you know what we once were. That we once sat with our legs useless and lame. And nothing we could do could help ourselves. And our lives went one way and the other way. But they never went the right way. And our, life was, our life was marked by sin and disobedience. But then that day came when that miracle of love took place. Lord, whether it was when our, in our infancy or whether it was when we were old, no matter when it happened, what a day that was. When in the name of Jesus, we stood on our feet and walked. Nothing that we did of our own efforts, all our own attempts failed. Our life was marked by failure. But then in the name of Jesus, power flowed into our legs. And we leaped and jumped and praised your holy name. Lord, give us to think back upon that day and to find in that day, in the memory of it, a motivation to go forward, to walk on those new legs that we've received and to walk in the way of your commandments, to run in the way that you would lead us forward. Lord, please bless us. Remember those, Lord, who this day are plagued by the memory of past sins. Lord, I pray earnestly that this day, this morning, this very hour, they would lay those sins at the feet of Jesus. And that in the name of Jesus, they would watch them disappear. Gone. Forever gone. Cast behind your back into a sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east from the west is distant, so far have they been removed from us. So your grace does in our lives. Lord, help us to rejoice then in God our Savior, to trust you, Lord, and to follow you all the days of our life. And Lord, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> Let's turn in the blue hymnal to number 428. 428. We'll sing the four, ver four verses. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come. And in verse 2, out of my shameful failure and loss, Jesus, I come. In verse 3, out of unrest and arrogant pride, Jesus, I come. In verse 4, out of the fear and dread of the tomb, Jesus, I come. The four verses of 428 in the blue hymnal. <coughs> 